podcast for the working cowboy well howdy there daylight burners um happy monday if you're on the main feed uh happy earlier than that for uh uh, the patreon folks um got a really good episode today uh with uh, jeremiah wilbur uh he is a uh, former uh special forces guy his uh his uh i guess heritage is uh is native as well as uh, as white white culture and as well as uh hispanic culture and just uh, all around just an interesting fella and just kind of a kind of a real fucking badass and uh, anyhow does some really cool stuff and we we talked a, a little bit about uh special special forces and and like your your kind of i guess your unconventional warfare uh troops and, and how how they basically took the the best aspects of the the native american warrior class and uh and moved that over to the U.S. Army, and 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 we we went off on several different tangents, but anyhow, this was a really cool episode. I think you guys will like it. Um, I know I did. Um, Jeremiah's uh he's a fucking fascinating guy and uh, a wealth of knowledge, and uh, just kind of one of those guys. Uh, you uh, it's it's good to be be on on good terms with. Uh, if uh, shit ever pops off, I know that like, Hey, I, I, I run into Jeremiah and I'm probably all right. So, um, cause if I'm not all right, then that dude would, would fucking murder me. But anyhow, it's, uh, he's, uh, he, he's a really, really fucking cool guy. And, uh, I, I, this is, this is a good conversation. I think you guys will like it. So anyhow, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it. Burning daylight. Burning daylight. 
Jeremiah, welcome back to the show. We had you on a, on a bull session and I, that's also another reason I really like the bull sessions because there's, there's some people that maybe don't talk as much on a, in a group setting like that, but you can tell they got cool shit to say and you're one of them. And, uh, it's funny, uh, <clears throat> I was, I was telling some of those guys about, uh, that, you know, when they asked who all was on and, and I, and I mentioned you and I was like, yeah, he's a, you know, retired, uh, special forces guy or, and there's like, oh shit, my, my dick just shrank a little bit. I didn't know we were having like <laughs> legit guys on, but, uh, I, uh, yeah, you seem like you got some, some just cool stories to tell and, uh, being, uh, you're, you're half Mescalero Apache. Is that correct? Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah. So you're coming from a warrior culture going into like the elite of the elite with, within the U S army. And, uh, I mean, so it's very much, uh, like you've just followed that, that old Indian path to, uh, to modern day times with, uh, and, uh, and especially being, uh, Green Bray special forces, your, uh, your master would be on the matter. you like your master skill sets going to be, uh, you know, unconventional warfare, which the natives were better than, than anyone at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a little bit of my background, um, by blood, my mother is Muscular Apache. Um, but I'm also a product of the, um, what we call the native American boarding schools. So a lot oh, of shit. Americans aren't really familiar with that. And what that is, is, um, my grandparents in the 1930s went to Catholic boarding schools. So they were basically forced to, um, indoctrinate and inculcate into, um, uh, you know, Western civilization, if you will. A lot of them were what they call whitewashing. Mm -hmm. The ones my grandparents went to were in, um, they were Catholic in Colorado. So they were um, Mexican based, they're Spanish based. So my grandparents, um, they both, on both sides of my mother's family, um, changed her last name um, to Hispanic last names. And then basically just kind of, because the way they look, they kind of inculcated it into the Mexican American culture. Okay. So my mother was raised more like a Mexican American woman. Um, but then when she was, um, where she's from, where she grew up in uh, San Diego County in Julian, it's kind of surrounded by a lot of Indian reservations. Mm -hmm. So she, she ran with a lot of, um, native, native women and native friends, you know, growing up as a kid. Um, but just always kind of thought she was Mexican until her mother, when she was older, started talking more about it. And then, um, in her, like she was like 18 or 19, she moved to Montana. And while she lived in Montana, she was adopted into the Assiniboine tribe. So everything I know that's, um, as far as, uh, culture, traditions, things like that, it's all Assiniboine. Um, so kind of a, a long way of saying, you know, a lot of native people, um, actually go through this, you know, especially, um, families like mine. And then my dad's just a, just a cowboy from Montana, you know, so, um, really cool background and, and very, um, a lot of culture there for me, you know, as a, as a kid and, you know, even as an adult now, you know, kind of having that Mexican, um, vaquero style of like grow upbringing mixed with, you know, um, a very traditional kind of, uh, warrior culture, uh, of the Assiniboine tribe. So, yeah. I, so, and Assiniboine, is that one, like one of the Plains, uh, Plains Indian tribes? Yes. Yeah. So, so we live, a, yeah. horse, horse, uh, a mounted tribe, uh, 
basically hunter cult, hunter warrior cult. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, they're basically one of the tribes that you know uh, followed the buffalo around, mm-hmm. um, in a, and then where we grew up in Montana, um, lived in Haver for a while, or right outside Haver. So like okay. all those Indian reservations that are up, kind of in the plains of Montana. Um, is is where the Assiniboine people are originally from, and then up into Canada as well. So there's another band that lives uh, on a, on the I don't know what they call, I forget they don't call them reservations in Canada they call them something else but um, on Indian reservations in Canada as well. Yeah. Okay. So I I when I was up in Montana I was uh, over at Big Sandy and uh, <clears throat> and so I remember we that Haver was the the closest town with uh, you know with most of the stuff you needed so that's where we went and yeah there's that big casino right on the on the highway there on the on the yep. you know on the south side of the highway and uh and that's kind of the, the entrance of the the res and i but i i wasn't up there long enough to to get to know any of those but there's there's quite a few uh uh reservations out here uh around where i'm at and a lot of a lot of native cowboys and they're they're all buckaroo yep. style and uh <clears throat> yeah it's it's kind of and, and there's, you know, it's funny how there's some tribes that took to the horse, like it was like the missing, you know, the Comanche always, you know, they were kind of short, stocky, kind of just not real great on their feet, but like you put them on a horse and they were the best of the best. And it was just like, uh, there was, I forget which chief it was, but they, uh, they said that like the, the horse was like the missing part of the, the native soul, uh, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, or, uh, the Comanche soul. And it just like from there, it was like game on, you know, they were kind of a struggling tribe until they, uh, until they mastered the horse. And, and then, you know, the, the Comanche ruled the most of the great plains for you know hundreds of years. Yeah. Where, where I, um, where I guide out a lot and outfit a lot at, in the wind river range is, um, what we call sheep eater country. So the sheep eater people, um, basically like a band of the sheep eaters came, came out of the wind rivers and like the Teton area and went straight into the plains and found the horse. And that was the Comanche. Mm-hmm. So that's why they were built this real short, stocky kind of mountain goat style of a uh, person. Yeah. Cause that's what they did. They, they chased, they chased goats, um, you know, and they were just amazing in the mountains uh, and then they came to the horse and, and just became this, uh, you know, horse people. And something that like, cause kind of cool when you talk about the Comanche, I think it's easier to, um, all tribes did this, but it's the Comanche were kind of known for it. And you can find it a little bit more in history books and whatnot with them, but, um, they adopted a lot of people. And one of the ways that they became really strong was because they didn't, when you look at the colors of the medicine wheel, what it represents, it represents a lot of things. One of the biggest things it represents is all the colors of the people of the world. Mm-hmm. So the Comanche were really known for just adopting people or whether it's through raiding, they would take kids, women, and children. Um, and they would just basically raise them as Comanche. So a lot of people that were Comanche, how they got so strong, they weren't necessarily Comanche by blood. They might've been another type of native or white or black or mixed or Mexican, you know, whatever. And, um, they basically just treated them as Comanche and they lived as, as Comanche. So, um, that was one of the ways that they became really strong and powerful, you know, as, as a tribe, because they were willing to do that where some other tribes didn't really raid and do the same things as far as trying to get women and children to actually grow their, grow their, um, tribe. Oh, okay. Yeah, that uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Like 
I mean, like Cynthia Ann Parker was like right, she was correct. enslaved. That's, that's what I mean. Yeah, she was yeah, you can started out as, books pretty easy. Yeah, as a slave, but like they eventually adopted her into the, the tribe. And uh, yeah, she yeah, then, chief. yeah, and then her son Quanta Parker, who's a uh, you know a half breed, yep. uh, becomes like the most well known uh, Comanche chief of all. You know, it's uh, yeah, and yeah, you know, through through circumstance and and the time, you know, of course, it's how he got his you know help uh, get his fame, but also because he was, I mean, the last of the the last Indians fighting at the time. You know, is it's yeah, uh, in that territory in Oklahoma territory. And, you know, they, and the commands really made a, and especially where they were at in Texas. And then once you have the kind of the advent of the Texas Rangers, um, I think a lot of times what we tend to do just in general, it's not just an American thing. It's just how the world works is um, if you look at indigenous cultures around the planet, a lot of times their story isn't told correctly or it's not believed. Mm -hmm. Until recently, we're finding a lot of evidence, um, archaeological evidence to to basically back what indigenous people around the world have been saying for centuries. So a lot of this, when you look at history, it's always kind of written by the victor. Mm -hmm. Um, So, of course, we look at like the Texas Rangers as like the most badass dudes at the time and everything else. And it's like, well, you, you know, there's there's a lot of other factors that go into play. And when you talk about history and the way it was written, um, especially when we talk about battles and, and uh, oftentimes you're not going to get both sides of the story. And what I like to try to tell people, you know, even if it's just a common argument, if me and you have a disagreement about something, you know, there's three sides to every story and there's, there's my side, there's your side. And there's probably the truth that lies in the middle of of both Mm -hmm. of our stories somewhere, you know? So I think that that, that part is hard when you talk about indigenous people and indigenous cultures. Um, throughout the world, just because we have this very modern Westernization mindset of things we've been taught. Um, and, and, you know, an example is like Christopher Columbus, you know, like if you're our age, you learn that Christopher Columbus in school, like found America and was this great explorer and all this other shit. And then the reality is it's like, no, he found the Caribbean. He never came to America. He was, you know, this horrible person. He was a, a slave driver and just, yeah. Really, you know, and, and, and found like his conquest and what he found was people. So like that was yeah. his way of making money was to sell people. So, I mean, you don't learn those things in school, um, you know, and that's just kind of an example of, of a lot of people nowadays really kind of finding that out and being like, wait, what do you mean? I read Christopher Columbus's diary and you're like, oh yeah, you read one side of the story. Did you learn about the Tiano people and what they say what happened? So there's a lot that goes into history, I think. And, and it's easy to kind of, you know, uh, gloss over at times, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I just, I remember in the history books growing up, uh, you know, talking about the Westward expansion and, and, <clears throat> It's looking back on it now. It's funny how they <laughs> they 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 took the white culture and made them as look as as noble and heroic as possible. Yeah. And then they also tried to play that line with the Indians as well. Like they they highlighted how savage they were without highlighting how savage we were. Uh, and then uh, and it's just like yeah, there, there's like Daniele Bellelli does that does some really good work on uh on his podcast on on crazy horse and 
And then uh, even in in the books like um, you know, Min, uh, uh, Empire of the the Summer Moon, Summer Moon, yeah. and 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 some of the stories that were they were told in there about just how like how brutal uh, those people could be, and uh, you're. But then you 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 think about like just the systematic destruction of the the buffalo herd perpetrated by the by the federal government, and you're just like uh, you you uh, you're playing like Russia style tactics where you just siege them out and just slowly over time just just starve them out, and that that's that's really what happened to the to the native people. You know, first it was the the disease and destruction, then it was the vast increases in technology and then just the overwhelming size and suffocation and starvation of the of the natives oh yeah it was you know when you look at all of that it's um it's way more complex than what we tend to tend to tend to think it is Mm -hmm. And, and here's an example especially um when you talk about like western culture um you start talking about cowboys and stuff right and and uh when you look at the vaquero and like, what was a vaquero and how did they start? And it's like, well, they were a bunch of mixed breed kind of nomad guys. They were, um, you know, some of them were native, some of them were Spaniards, some of them were white guys. I mean, they were, and they basically, even when you look up the term, you look at the history of the vaquero, that's exactly what they were. They were, you know, native people who were kind of inculcated into Spaniard Spanish way of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the lowest man on the totem pole, like no one wants to be on a horse working cows, like it's hard work. So it was more of a, um, it was more of kind of a, you know, the original like blue collar, you know, bottom shelf job you could get literally that, a pee on job. Oh, 100%. And when you look at it, it's like, I think oftentimes in our culture, because of, you know, movies in the early 1940s to like the seventies, um, they didn't show, you know, uh, a guy that was like half black and half white that was a cowboy. And like the reality of it was, was, you know, there was a lot of black cowboys. There was a lot of mixed breed guys. There was a lot, it, and it, it really became, um, and when you look at like the modern cowboys, how it developed, you look at people like the Comancheros who were basically just that they were kind of outcasts and a little bit of outlaw, but at the same time, you know, they were just you know, cowboys who were trying to look for work and kind of develop into that. And I think that that's a good example of showing people, you know, that, that history isn't exactly what we think it is. And Hollywood has done a really good job of taking, you know, the last four or five generations of people and really taking your mind to a different place. So a lot of people think of cowboys as this white guy, um, out on a ranch and people like me and you, we know, like we work with, you know, native guys, black guys, white yeah. guys, Mexican guys, like, you know, and, and you see that. So, um, the real, me- and women, real melting women too, you know? Oh, for sure. And I think that oftentimes that's kind of, um, you know, that's something that's a kind of a story that's not told. And that's a, just an easy example for, for me that I like to share with people because a lot of people are interested in it. And a lot of the old, especially the old cowboys, you know, they know why they rope a certain way or why things mm-hmm. are called something and, and they understand that, you know, and I think that's really cool. Um, part of part of American history that isn't really told as well. Um, and then, like I said, Hollywood, Hollywood, you know, especially when you look at the sixties and the fifties and sixties and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, it was, uh, 
very like everyone's white in the whole, you know, the whole cast. And, um, you know, it's just, it was just kind of, uh, I think that that was able to steer people in a different way on their thought process or what they think of as an American cowboy. Yeah. And, and like piggybacking on that point, like I've always heard how the military is literally just a cross section of America when you, when you, when you get thrown in and I, I was, I was, you know, I test away from going into the Marines and, uh, and it just, just, I've heard story after story of guys like you and, uh, and just how like some of your best friends are, are, are black or, or native or Mexican or whatever. It just so happens to be like who you were in that unit with, who had your back. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and it's kind of the same way in cowboy culture too. And it's, uh, the, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous job at the end of the day. You know, there's, there's, there's shit can happen. Luckily on my end, I don't have bullets coming at me. Uh, that's that. So that, that's, that's a handy deal. Um, but you know, where, whereas, um, your former line of work, it was, it was very much the same thing, but it breeds a type of person where like, like when, when you joke around, everything is on the table, like race is on the table. Your mother is on the table and, yeah, and, and just, and you just you like it, it comes like you have a hard time relating to regular folks because you do live on that fringe of society. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think um, you know any job field, whether that's you know oil workers or cowboys or you know anything that where death is always very present mm-hmm. and, and part of what you do. I think that that um, yields a different kind of uh, humor a different kind of respect for each other, you know, and that was my favorite thing about the army and, um, was, you know, all walks of life coming together to accomplish a common goal, you know, like no one cares your color, creed, religion, none of that, you know, and and even, even today, as much as society tries to push us into this sexual orientation and all this crazy stuff, you know, like at the end of the day, um, if you got a gay dude and he's an awesome cowboy, or he's an awesome soldier. We're going to tell gay jokes, but yeah. no one cares. As long as you're like, bro, don't bring, don't whip it out on me. Like I'm not, but at the same time, like it's, I think that a lot of people, um, you know, they, we try to society lets us try to put us in these boxes mm-hmm. and the military and jobs where death is always present is one of the few places left that, um, push aside those boxes and doesn't allow you to, to be that way. And you're just like, look, man, I don't care if you're Muslim and you're purple. If you're good at your job and you got my back, I got your back because right. that's what we do. We take care of each other. And, and I, I really, that was my favorite thing about being in the army. Yeah. I, uh, those are some, uh, like my just, favorite like especially podcasts like i always always like listening to evan hayford talk i don't know if you if you ever worked with him uh in the military but i know you guys have that same type of background and and the guy's just no bullshit like he's hilarious and he's uh i mean he's like superhuman work ethic but just looking what they've done over there at black rifle yeah and uh but at the same time he's down to earth and no bullshit like uh i got you know got to visit with him for an hour and like I, I could talk to that guy for hours and just pick his brain. And, and a lot of that comes just through working with guys like you and, or some, some of the, you know, the, the Cowboys that I've met over the years, it's that same, like you learn so much from people like that. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, 
and, you know, speaking of Evan, I, I met him in Montana and I've had, we have a lot of mutual friends and uh, kind of in the same circle. Um, but, you know, I, I think it just goes back to just the, the jobs, you know, and what we do um, for a living. It, it's, you got to have that kind of mindset. And, and I look at it as, you know, um, a lot of times people, they just blow up on things that aren't really that serious. And when you've been around something where, you know, when bullets are flying and people are dying or horses are rolling over and you're airlifting your buddy out and in the middle of a ranch, like those are things that ever experiences that, um, that we share and we understand. So oftentimes the small things in life, you're like, why are we being so serious? Let's just have fun laugh about stuff and, and, you know, go on with our day versus, um, you know, someone who doesn't live that way of life or has never experienced that they really freak out, you know, when something small happens or doesn't go their way or, you know, their favorite, uh, their favorite caramel macchiato is not at Starbucks or whatever the case is, you know, versus somebody else that's just used to very serious, serious situations that are life and death. You tend to brush things off in a way different in a different manner than a lot of other people do. Well, yeah, and you know, like, and, and cowboying in particular, there's uh, there's always the fun part where you got a rope or, or something busts into, and you got to cover them. But yeah. a good chunk of cowboying is a lot of boredom, just a ton of boredom. <laughs> and you know, and I hear it from the military guys all the time: "Hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait." That's yeah, yeah. the motto of the military. Yeah. I, and, I I get guys all the time. Um, you know, people will be like, Hey, post more cowboy shit on social media. And, and it makes me laugh. Cause I'm like, well, here's the deal, man. I don't have a professional photographer following me around or a drone or anything like that. And, and I need two hands. Yep. The other thing is the other thing is most 90% of the shit I do is not worth like, what do you want to see me do? Driving a skid steer, unloading something, or mm-hmm. you know, pounding fence posts—like it's it's not as um, glorious as people think it is. Um, and that, and my favorite thing about you know the the cowboy world and that job is, and how it relates to the military is, um, there's a lot of similarities there. You know, a lot of similarities where you know, when you're in the military, you're taking care of your guys, you're taking care of your soldiers. Um, you know, same when you're a cowboy, you're taking care of your animals, you're taking care of your horses, you know, you're the last person to eat at the end of the day, Yeah. you know? And I think a lot of people don't understand those similarities. Um, and there are often times where it's not as cool as you think it is. You know, there's a lot of mission planning. There's a lot of times we're sitting around preparing, checking gear, really fine tuning everything, you know, maybe a week's worth of planning and preparation go into a six hour mission. Um, and it's very similar when you look at like operations where you're like, all right, well, you know, we have a lot of planning and details that go into being able to get, you know, a thousand calves branded. And I don't think a lot of people understand that aspect of it. They just see the guys roping and the coolness and the stuff Mm -hmm. that you can kind of see on social media. Um, and the other thing I really like about the two is uh, you, you can't fake the funk, you know, like you, you can run your mouth all you want about how good you can shoot or how good of an operator you are or mm-hmm. how good a shape you're in or whatever. Same thing with cowboy deal, you know, and, but at the same time, we're going to find out real quick who's, who's about that action and who isn't, you know, and, and that's one of my, one of another, one of my favorite things about uh, the similarities in the two worlds. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, 
when the rope comes tight, there's no bullshit. I mean, and I'm sure that's the same thing was like when that first shot is fired, like, you know, whatever planning you may have, like it, how good are you right now? Because <laughs> it's, that's all yeah. a plan until shit, <laughs> until shit happens. You know, it, it could be the sickest calf you've ever seen. And as soon as that rope comes tight, blah, and it comes alive. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and you're just like, this is not how I thought it would go, but you, you have to just react on the fly. And, and when, and that's, that's it. You you know, real quick how, how good somebody is or, or how much they've done. But I mean, just as simple as like, Hey, come pick up heels. And they're like, um, okay. And you're like, ah, fuck. Now I'm just going to have to lay this calf down on my own. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you're just like, oh, all right, well, if you would have just told me from the get go, um, you know, and I, I'm sure it's just the same way in, in the military. You just like, you can't fake that shit. No. And, and I, I, um, you know, me, you know, I spent 22 years in the army, so I've had a, a huge gaps of where, you know, at times I'd be on leave and I could help out on a ranch or maybe there's, I was stationed near something and I could kind of go help out. But, um, I learned, I think the army taught me, especially being in special forces and being a green beret. Um, there's two kind of guys, you know, and you can kind of have that attitude where you're good at everything. You know, everything, but at the same time, no one wants to be around that guy. You don't have any humbleness and you could even be really good. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, sometimes that cockiness is just too overbearing. Um, and, and I really like, uh, the humility. I love being around people who are willing to say, I don't know how to do that. And yes. uh, that's something that, that's something that I have like <clears throat> learned, you know, uh, it took me a while to be that person, but, um, you know, I learned that in the military and, and I've just had phenomenal experiences learning this trade craft as a, as a cowboy from people, because, you know, I get way more respect when I say, Hey, I don't know how to do that. Or they're like, Hey, can you, are you, you know how to do this? I'm like, no, can you show me, or I'm not that good mm -hmm. at it. Show me a couple of times. Let me practice. Yeah. Or tell me exactly what you want me to do. And I'll execute that way. Um, versus guys who were like, Oh no, yeah, I know how to do that. I can do that. I can do that. And then just what you said, now you're in a situation where you're like, okay, but like you clearly don't now I have to fucking do yeah. it. And now it's a train wreck and it could get, you know, and, and the, the, the problem that, um, arises, what sucks is it's dangerous work, you know? And, and if you're not willing to say, I don't know how to do mm -hmm. something, um, you know, uh, so I really enjoy being around, um, around that. And, uh, I've, I've had been blessed with being around a lot of old cowboys and, mm. and, uh, guys that, you know, that are, um, kind of came from that very old school mentality that yeah. way, you know, versus, um, a lot of the younger guys and such seemed to me that term, like super puncher, you know, everything's fast. They want to ride it. Everything fast and everything's yeah. like, and you're like, dude, slow down, bud. Slow down. Yeah. Slow is slow is fast. Uh, <laughs> like when it comes with, with, with cows and, <clears throat> you know, and, and even, even with horses too, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's why the, like the, the good bridle horses take years upon years to, to make a good bridle horse. But then there, there's also, I know that there's, you know, th those are, that's the, the type of horsemanship that anybody can appreciate. But I also like to, there's also stuff where you got to get done now. Like I need, I, I don't have years to spend on this horse. I got, I got months. So like I need them, need them up to speed quick. And so there's, there's a lot of give and take within, um, 
you know, I, I mean, that, that's a lot like the, the military too, you know, just, you have like special forces. Hose, you don't have no choice. Yeah. And then, but you have, you have like your special forces mm-hmm. guys, like where you're, you're doing some weird shit a lot of times. Uh, <clears throat> and then like your, your, uh, conventional military guys, like they're, their, their day is boring as fuck until like shit pops off. Like, I mean, it, you're just, uh, I mean, I, I don't know what you do most of the time, but like where, where you guys are planning for, for stuff that's a lot of times off the books. Um, you know, you're, you're always, always, like you said, six months of training for, uh, you know, for the six hour mission. Yeah. And, I, you know, there's a lot of um, similarities between the regular military and special forces. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that we do um, in special operations in general, and then in special forces in particular, is the training so long, um, it's such a rigorous selection process, and it takes about two years to become a Green Beret. Um, but with that, we oftentimes we don't have a, um, like a micromanaging system. We don't have, you know, three or four layers of leadership. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, Hey, if you need a job to get done, I'm just going to direct you or tell you what the end state is. And that's it. However you get there is on you. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's way more, you know, it's really big boy rules. So I think that that part allows us to operate more effectively. Um, but at the same time, it, it does give guys, you know, enough rope to hang themselves. And, and there are guys that, you know, kind of get in trouble or in over their head. But um, I think there's a lot of similarities between the regular army. But the biggest one is we're big boy rules. You're not always going to get told how to do something. You just get told what the mission statement is um, or the end state, you know, the commander's intent, what they want done. And how you accomplish that is on your own, you know. So that that's a really cool thing about um, about special forces, and one of my favorite things that I like. Now, so how how did you guys develop your your tactics? I know they're, I mean, without going like too far into it, but like um, I, I know that that the special operations community has has basically. I, I and I say stolen and I, I mean that in the best way. It's like no, we we we're we're taking uh we're taking we're stealing your best tactics uh as the native people uh, on the on in particularly like raiding. Just like you yeah. hit hard, you hit fast and then you disperse. Yeah, I would think I would say um you know some of the biggest tactics that um we've taken away from native culture is scouting and reconnaissance and survivability mm. um you know and and if you go so a little bit of history um if you go back to king philip's war and i believe it was like 1676 or something the uh the um colonialists or the pilgrims were fighting the wampanoag and their allies were um the mohegan and uh i forget the other and i think the pequot and they developed um so in their army that they developed, the Mohegan and the Pequot were basically their special operations guys. They were their special forces. So that's what's technically recognized as the first United States um, special forces or special operations uh, unit is during mm-hmm. King Philip's War. And the reason why was because um, if you just look at how they fought back in the day, you know, guys are lining up on each side and 
it's a lot of hand to hand, even though you have muskets and whatnot, mm-hmm. but, uh, the natives were the best at you know, kind of sneaking around, getting reconnaissance. Um, you know, if you were marching in a convoy or, or walking down a trail, trying to get to from point A to point B or moving supplies, they were really good at, you know, two or three guys kind of hitting that or, or, uh, you know, sabotaging things in the middle of the night. Those <laughs> the kind of old tactics, whites hated those tactics too. I absolutely despised exactly. it. They thought it as cowardly. And, uh, yeah. cause you weren't, you weren't standing up right across from somebody and letting them try to shoot you. Yeah. It's so dumb. It's like, well, it's different. We don't have swords anymore. So why are we doing this way? This is yeah. really stupid. <laughs> yeah. You're going to um, lose a lot of people unnecessarily. Yeah, and, and, you, and you know, you just look at warfare in general and, and, uh, a lot of times those unconventional tactics and that guerrilla warfare style is what dominated on the battlefield. Mm. or turn or turn major events like you look at the romans and how they felt to the barbarians and you look at those wars and it was like yeah because they trapped them into the mountains they they lured them into walking down the you know marching down a certain trail and then the barbarians were able to basically just kind of take them apart in the mountains and using tactics that the romans weren't um privy to so Mm. they weren't able to get in their phalanxes and they weren't able to line up and do what they did and create this you know this war machine they had to fight in these very unconventional ways um and when you just look at that in general you know you look at uh like the mongols one of the ways they were able to advance so fast on the chinese was obviously the horse but what a lot of people don't know about them is yeah they were amazing horsemen really good with bows but they, um, they also, they ate their horses. They used the mare's milk. Like, I mean, it was just like mm-hmm. this amazing platform for them. That was very unconventional to other armies that needed rice and meat and these big supply lines to, to feed them. Um, whereas the Mongols, they didn't need that. They were able to have this very unconventional method of traveling and fighting and sustaining themselves. Um, so I think that those, you know, as you look just through history, there's there's a lot of uh, pieces in there that really show you how oftentimes that unconventional warfare side of things really turns the battlefield. Um, you know, and that goes all the way up into you know current current uh, engagements and conflicts now. Yeah, um, you know anybody over in, in Ukraine right now? Yeah, I do. I have a lot, uh, a lot of buddies over there. Yeah, I. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, that shit's uh well the thing that testy. it is the, i think the thing that um bothers me a little bit and this is just because of my time you know fighting uh, you know and and on three different continents um it's like well we don't you know i get it you know russia and putin they have nuclear weapons so we're we are looking at this in a different light but what one thing we're letting it do is we're letting the same old thing that they got that, you know, politicians and some of the great uh, generals have been saying for, since we started our country is we're letting old white men tell us what to do that will never fight. We're letting people like Mitt Romney who dad dodged the draft and didn't go to Vietnam. Mm. Also has oil you know, interests in Ukraine. Oh, 100%. They all have money ties. It's an industrial military complex. But, the, but my problem is like, well, what's the difference between Syria? What's the difference with Yemen? You know, mm-hmm. 54 million people have been killed in Africa over the last like 10 years. So when you, it's, it's not a moral stance. We're, they're, we're, they're trying to fool the American public into thinking that this is like a moral stance mm-hmm. on, on what we need to do with Ukraine. But again, there's three sides to every story. And if Russia would put nuclear weapons 
and ballistic weapons in Mexico. You don't think we wouldn't invade Mexico? Right. Um, so I, th- I think that a lot of times we're just blinded by the media and what they want us to see. And ultimately, everyone is corrupt. I hate all politicians, by the way. Um, they're all about money. They're all you know, cunts, and, and as Dan Holloway they says. All, they all are. Um, yeah, I, I, it's... And it's amazing if you try to point out how, like, Ukraine's a bunch of assholes too in this situation that then, you know, you get, you get called a, a Putin apologist. Well, I know that guy's a fucking asshole too. And I don't see us needing to get further involved in a fight between two assholes. And, and, you know, and also, like you said, we, we also kind of help kick off that fight, um, through, uh, two decades of uh, just slowly creeping towards the, the yeah, Russian border. A lot of people don't understand NATO and, and the Russians. And, and it's one of those things where, um, you know, look at oil. It's all money. Follow the money. Yeah. It's like, look at Germany. Like, mm-hmm. are you serious? Come on, man. Follow the money. Right. And yeah, I've said before, like one thing that's really flew under the radar is uh, how much uh, Germany is going to pour into their military and, Last time Germany had a super powerful military didn't end good for a lot of people. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but, but yeah, going, I was, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was, was going to say going back to um, kind of the history uh, of um, special forces, you know, or, or special operations. Um, I'm not sure how it grew from you know King Philip's War up until about um, when you really look at like the tactics used. Uh, with the natives when they raided and how, and how they conducted things. But, you know, special forces, the cross arrows is from the um, Apache scouts. So that was, you know, where we get our um, identification from, from the Apache scouts. And that was kind of really where um, after the Indian wars, you kind of look at Geronimo's time, time frame. once all that stuff was over was really when the military realize how valuable um everything was you mm-hmm. know, uh and, and their tactics were they definitely used scouts and stuff throughout the indian wars but um you know when you just look at how it developed from there and as you go into you know modern warfare from world war one or world war two um there were very elite units um established and based around you know the native uh tactics to include um actual native units like um like the Alamo scouts on world war two. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when you look at, uh, you know, the, the OSS, which is, you know, basically if you've seen, you've seen the movie, uh, Inglorious Bastards, yeah. it's loosely based on the members Jet of the Burks. OSS. Yeah, exactly. So from after world war two is when you have a branch of when they branch off between CIA and special forces. Um, right. And then in the South Pacific, you have the Alamo scouts and those were, um, Actually, the unit was comprised of mostly natives and uh, cowboys and mountain men, just guys who knew how to live off the land because they specifically wanted those skill sets of being able to go into the jungle, do long range reconnaissance for you know weeks on end and not need anything. Mm. Um, and you, and frankly, you just couldn't take city boys and and teach them to do that in such a short period of time. And they already had um, a lot of natives that were, you know, hunting, living on the land, living on their reservations, you know, still very inculcated. And, you know, you're, and you're also talking in World War II, you're talking one generation away from fighting in Indian wars, you know, so yeah. like your father or your grandfather's 
were fighting in Indian wars and, and had this, um, still really carried on that, uh, that, um, warrior mindset. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, um, if you look at all of like the most effective, uh, us military leaders in the Indian wars, they heavily relied on friendly Indian tribes. Like Kit Carson, you could say like his unit, uh, back in the day was a special forces unit because that, that's exactly right. They would go out on these long reconnaissance missions. Uh, Kit Carson was a fan of the mule famously rather over horses because of their durability. And, uh, <clears throat> and he, uh, like he was quick to fight an Indian when it came to fight, but he was like, Hey, let's, uh, let's talk. And he, like he had just dozens of uh of well like of scouts that he trusted that he used you know constantly yeah i think so there's a um a saying i like to use especially when we start talking about american history in particular um natives versus you know western expansion or colonialism and um it's one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Mm-hmm. um you know and geronimo's last words when he died he actually said i wish i killed more mexicans yeah, um, he hated he hated Mexicans, you know, and and it's one of those things where it's like, did the cavalry, um, you know, play games like stacking babies on sabers? Yes. Did Geronimo stack Mexican kids on a pike? Yes. Yep. And and there's there's, I'm not saying that anything is right, but when you look at war, when you look at how do you create fear and despair in people to fear in their enemy it goes back since, since Cain and Abel, you know, and, and it's, everyone fought this way, whether it's the Mongols or the Vikings or the barbarians or the Romans, you know, everyone would try to institute fear into their enemies. And a lot of times the way you would do that was by very brutal, um, brutal means, you know, whether that's torture or Mm -hmm. how you're killing people. Um, you know, and, and I think that that, that saying goes a long ways and it even is even, um, I can even give you, you know, tangible things I've seen on the battlefield, like in Afghanistan, um, that, you know, just kind of proves that, you know, it's one man's freedom fighters, another man's terrorist or vice versa, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Um, but the, one of the things is, you know, with Kit Carson's a good analogy and a good, um, person, if you read some of this stuff or, you know, about him, um, he, he's one of those guys where I look at, it's like, you know, soldiers take orders from people mm-hmm. and they often don't. Um, oftentimes we, we, we remove every kind of moral clause out of your mind or what we look at people. But when you look at what they did, the Navajo, there's a lot of his writings and stuff where he started this thing and he thought it was going to be way different than it was about, you know, bringing Navajo people to their land, to the new reservation they gave them. Um, and it was way more brutal and horrible and he wanted no part of it. And he actually, mm-hmm. um, talks about it a lot, very openly, um, you know, how much it hurt his heart and, and how he felt because he really did like these people. And, um, I think that's a good example of kind of like someone taking orders, you're executing a task, but then you kind of have this moral clause and a moral lens in there. Um, and he does a very good job for anybody who's interested in, you know, kind of learning about Kit Carson and, and that, uh, the, the other thing I really liked is you, you mentioned Kit Carson was, um, he tells a story about when the cavalry, when they were trying to fight the Californios and, uh, it was the first time they rolled up on all these guys and they were kind of 
hanging out by the fire and their serapes just hanging out. And they thought they were going to jump these bunch of these Californios and, uh, and, you know, just smash them real fast. And he talks about how he's never seen anyone on a horse maneuver the mm-hmm. horses and use a lasso and a lance that way. And he just, they basically, the, the, like, I don't know how big the element was, but it was only a couple, it was like 50 or 60 Californios cowboys yeah. just destroyed like 200 cavalrymen because they would just rope them. And, and it was, he was like this, the lasso was like a, like an extension of their hand. And it was ridiculous. So yeah. He ended up jumping off his mule and running up into the rocks and just trying to shoot him with his musket. He's like, I don't want no part of this. Right. Down he, there. he he went uh, to native tactics real quick. Just uh, yeah, get back behind cover, you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. It's uh, I think that was this, the battle of San Pasquale. I, I know that because yeah, um, I, I did an episode on that after um, what, what's nice. the name of that book? Um, uh thunder or something yeah so uh, i i forget the name of it but, but it, yeah it's a really good book it kind of journals his life and, and talks mm. about kid carson i yeah, yeah and you know he he uh he married indian women and uh and he just he was very like in touch with like he was he's very much an american but he was also very in touch with uh with the with the indian culture and uh and there was like a lot of internal clash between him, uh, you know, within himself. Uh, and, and, uh, he was an um, incredible figure. I mean, that, that, that guy was, uh, he was something else. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I think oftentimes, you know, a lot of history is lost. Um, and I think it just goes back to kind of what we've learned in school and also movies. Um, but one of the things I like to, to remind people of is, the Spaniards, when they showed up, they marched from Guatemala to Canada and then from Guatemala to Chile. And when you rewind a little bit in history, um, oftentimes people want to make this like a red versus white thing. The same with like Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll kind of see a lot of people talk about that. And with King Philip's war, and it's like, well, is it really red versus white if the Mohican and the, and the Pequot fought with the Pilgrims? So it's not as cut and dry as we like to make everything right. seem. It's not as divisive as, as people want us to believe. Um, but when we go back to the Spaniards and you look at the Spaniards, it's like, okay, well, in 700 AD or around that time, they were conquered by the Moors. The Moors are from Africa. So you can see what they, what they look like, right? Mm. Um, they didn't bring any women. So even now, this current day and age, Spaniards and uh, Portuguese and Italians, it's like, why are they darker skinned? Why are they, you know, why do they have like black facial hair and a lot of things that, and it's like, well, because they're, the Moors didn't bring any women and they conquered them. Yeah. And then you fast forward to uh, the conquistadors landing and then fighting the Aztecs and doing all that stuff. A lot of people, in my opinion, think of this like white European conquering and conquesting. And it was like, well, maybe the officers might've been kind of a white European looking man, but the actual soldiers and the conquistadors who fought were guys who looked like me and my brothers. They were, they were a very mixed breed looking, looking person. Um, And uh, you know, you kind of fast forward to that. And I think we American history, we remove that a lot um, because we automatically go into like this, uh, U S versus Mexico, you know, at the Alamo 
we look at a lot of things in that manner versus really understanding what happened before Western expansion and Louisiana purchase and all this other stuff where it's like, you know, we had a lot of mountain men that were inculcated and lived and loved native people. Um, you know, and, and there, there is a turn there when it comes to respect for the land and kind of over hunting and over trapping. And those were some of the reasons why, you know, like, certain tribes were more aggressive towards trappers and mountain men, you know, when you're looking at the early 1800s. Um, War is always over resources, ain't it? It it does seem that way a lot of times, you know, and and even, and I would add, you know, power is like a resource, you know, and, and, uh, and, and I think that that part is often missing and it is really good to hear stories from different cultures, different walks of life that have, that lived in that era to um, really see what they're in mind. And I think that anybody who hasn't, you know, kind of studied Kate Carson or read some of his stuff, he's a really good example of that, of a, of a guy who, um, in my opinion, really lived the, had, had a lot of more morality in his, in him. Um, he really understood and lived that, uh, you know, the colors of the medicine wheel, if you will. Um, all walks of life coming together to accomplish a common goal. And you might not agree with this common goal, but I think he did a very good job of trying to protect people in general on both sides of what he, what may have been his enemy or what may have been his ally. Um, he did a very good job of that. So I do like the, I do refer to Kit Carson a lot and through history and we'll tell people, you know, check out Kit Carson. Um, you know, and, and I have a lot of native friends that are kind of opposite side of the spectrum, you know, and, and I understand mm-hmm. that, that are, um, what I mean by that is like, um, you know, you're on stolen land and, and have this huge feeling of what happened. Um, but at the same time, you know, the warriors, I know they understand what it was. Mm-hmm. We know why, you know, why did, the Comanche hate the Apache? Why did the Apache raid the Navajos? Why did Hopis and Pueblos live the way they lived in dwellings? And, and it, it, it was always a warring, clashing societies before even before Spaniards showed up, before, you know, Europeans started the Western expansion. Um, it's a lot more complex than just red versus white. Mm-hmm. When we talk about Western expansion and we talk about what goes on, now, if you fast forward to today, um, I understand that sentiment. I understand that from living on an Indian reservation, from being there and, and, and uh, you know, really working with the Native community. I understand that. And one thing I try to explain to a lot of Americans is the direction our country is going when they take your rights away and they put restrictions on you and all these things, I'm like, well, we did that before we killed all the Buffalo and stripped away an entire means of life to people. And then we put them on land that won't grow shit where there's no jobs, where there's nothing. We take their identity away. We make them live in a certain way on commodity foods and government dependence. And you fast forward 150 years and you have the problems we have today on Indian reservations. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to, to, to kind of share that with people because it's like, well, you know, the tiny little infringements that the government's constantly trying to do to you um, and the government overreach, what they want is they want all of us to live in that kind of environment. 
Um, and you look at it now and you know, you're around Indian reservations. Like there ain't no jobs there. There's no, no there's, there's Amazon ain't pulling up to Crow Heart, Wyoming and opening up a warehouse. No, you know, and, and that's just, that's just how it is. Um, which really, you know, it's, it's frustrating and it sucks. And it, and it is, it does create more division when we do talk about this red versus white or red versus, you know, it's the same thing with the, the inner cities too. And like, going, I I think kind of a parallel figure to Kit Carson is Jefferson where he was very much involved in the slave trade, but at the same time he hated it. You know, he, he had sex with his, with his slaves, had kids with them. Um, he, he tried to abolish slavery or he tried to free his slave, but he was bound by law at the time to, uh, to not be able to free any of his slaves. And, uh, it was just a, a moral quandary, but you, it's the same thing. You look back, uh, at the new deal, uh, and, um, I guess it was even kind of before the new deal, but, uh, Roosevelt made a deal. Um, I guess yeah, it was a new deal, uh, that with, uh, you know, is some sort of heavy subsidy towards the black community to get them on board with these new deal policies. And the black community has been on the government tit ever since. And you look at like Baltimore and South side of Chicago and Oakland and on all these, these inner cities. And it's, that's why they turn to gangs and shit. Cause there's, there's no other option. Right. They're, they're longing for a tribe, a sense of community, um, mm. you know, and, and unfortunately, like you said, it, it's, you know, you can go back to like Black Wall Street in Oklahoma and what mm-hmm. happened there. And you look at these thriving communities. And and I don't, I, I know that race has nothing to do with it. I know that some people will try to interject a lot of race in here. But, and I'm not saying that, um, what I mean, let me explain myself. I'm not saying that there wasn't racial intentions with all this, you know, 50, you know 60, 70 years ago, or, or you know, even mm-hmm. 200 years ago for that matter. But, um what's really happened now is when you look at these cities and it's like, well, why is Baltimore city? Why has it not changed in 60 years? Why are we electing people and officials? Um, you know, of almost the entire police force is black, the mayors and the governors and everyone there are black. And it's like, okay, well now we still can't inject this. It's racial thing anymore. The problem is we're, we're not creating um, one is jobs really like there's no jobs there. Um, yeah. and this goes with, I look at America as having not being a, 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 a super racist place. I, I understand there's some racism with people. I'm not saying there isn't, um, I've dealt with it myself, but, um, but it's really socioeconomic standing, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's the rust belt, uh, in Ohio or, you know, West Virginia or inner cities or Indian reservations, they all share a common thing. And that is, there's no jobs, there's nothing for them to do. They are, you know, they do create these government subsidies and these things, these programs, um, where the reality is, uh, most of these people, they don't, they don't want that. That's not what they want, you know. Um, but again, it's like, well, Amazon, where are you putting your new facilities at? Well, it's not in Baltimore City, Maryland. It's in, you know, the suburbs somewhere in, in a nice upper middle class area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that a lot of that is more economic, economic standing. And uh, just like you said, and you can really see those in inner cities, Indian reservations and uh, like and and then, rural, you know, rural areas. Yeah. I mean, like 
And they all have uh, one thing in common, and it's no jobs and drug use. Like it's yep. that that's yeah. And you look at the opioid, like the fentanyl. Mm-hmm. That's the fentanyl is oh man, it, that's a whole nother thing. And some of the work I do, um, you know, is definitely uh, fentanyl is it's affecting communities, especially poor communities, um, on a drastic, drastic level. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, Mm. Yeah, that 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 shit's uh shit's rough. That uh and it's oh, yeah. it's um oh man, we could go on for hours about that that war on drugs stuff oh. and, and how oh, how yeah. much it it has caused like current uh like the border crisis. That's almost all yeah, created by the even, war on drugs. Oh, 100%. Even going back to the black community, you know, you look at like the 80s and Ronald Reagan and and you know, if you were caught with a little bit of crack cocaine, you would get, you know, 15 years in prison. But if you were a white guy who was just doing cocaine, you got a, a ticket mm-hmm. or, you know, six months in prison or something versus, yeah. you know, and there, there's a lot of, you know, fuckery that went on with that, that we're still trying to, um, what was it? They created a, system, a Joe you know? Biden uh, connection. There? I mean, pretty, pretty, oh, yeah, pretty heavy connection. 96. <laughs> yeah. That's, oh, that was, that was what made me laugh, you know, during the election. And, and I, I, to be clear, I, I don't like any of the, any politicians. And, and I, if I had to, you know, vote for one, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Both these dudes are idiots. But yeah. Um, it was funny that they elected the biggest establishment candidate that's ever lived. Yeah. And somebody that um, was so anti and clearly, clearly racist with racist intentions, especially in the nineties when he did that bill with Bill Clinton. You yeah. Know, and, and the and, super uh, predators as Hillary. Clinton yeah, and, and, and I'm not knocking people from the South because I'm from, you know, Montana and the West, but like I've, didn't really realize how much racism was in our country until I went into the army and traveled to the South. Yeah. Can you yeah, give me a second? I gotta, I gotta take a leak and I gotta tell these kids to shut up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No problem. I'm going to do the same. <laughs> All right. Sweet. All right. Sorry about that, dude. Hey, no, I'm no trying problem. To I was like, oh, man. <laughs> my kids are being loud. I'm like, be quiet. Um, <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah. I, uh, I say yeah. we, uh, I feel like we should do this as a series, like do multi-part because that, like, I, I kind of got to go check on kids, so we, we probably better wrap here soon. But we we haven't even yeah. hardly got started, you know. Like I feel like, yeah, no worries. Um, I can do um, talk about War Party Movement a little bit if you want. Yeah, I was gonna say let's do that. that. So because uh, I really wanted you to be able to highlight what you got going on there and and the problem yeah, sure. behind it, you know. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, I guess a lot of people don't know, um, but. There's a like a ton of native girls that just go missing, disappear off the res, and and the war party movement is uh, as something that you're involved with to help uh, combat that. Yeah, so I I started um, war party movement um, last July, and really it kind of started from my mother. Um, growing up as a kid, my mom would always um, trying to help native women and. They're always, you know, going to somebody's house and take them to a church or a shelter or something. And, and just through the years, you know, this, this problem just, um, just progressed worse and worse and worse. And there's a lot of issues and reasons why, um, native women do go missing. Um, 
a lot of it's kind of access and placement, you know, especially in the West, because they're, they're such rural areas. They're kind of easy to abduct. You know, there's a lot of things as a predator that would like to have. Um, they're also very sought after in like the um, sex trafficking world, you know, just a native woman, uh, native <laughs> American woman. Um, but there's just a lot of problems and, you know, it goes back to, you know, where there's poverty, there's sex trafficking, there's human mm-hmm. trafficking and that's, you know, inner city to rural America, you know, that's very common, uh, what you see there. Um, there's a lot of statistics, you know, when it comes to native women and one of the biggest things it's like in, in, uh, 2016, there was over 5,000 missing or murdered indigenous women. And only 116 of those cases have been logged by the DOJ. Um, so there's a lot of issues when it comes to law enforcement talking with each other, local sheriff's department, um, tribal police. Um, there's a lot of issues there, you know, that that uh, tend to um, make this problem even harder to uh, help control or help combat. So there's a lot of grassroots efforts from organizations or companies like myself. Um, and basically what war party movement is, it's just a t-shirt company. It's just an apparel company. And what I do with the money is I, um, I use that to support my efforts in helping families search for missing people. Um, a lot of the times I can't exactly tell a lot of stories about what I do because these women, um, are, are lives are in danger, you know, and, and, uh, recently, uh, I kind of share a, a little bit of a story that happened recently without trying to give too much detail. Um, we had a woman, I can't even say the state because you'd be able to narrow it down, but we had a woman um, who was on the run. Uh, she was going to testify in a missing murdered indigenous woman case. That was actually her niece. And um, the people involved uh, attempted multiple attempts on her life. They actually killed her boyfriend in front of her. She went on the run. We were able to, you know, kind of, bring her into our system, get her to a safe house. Um, and now she's actually at a recovery center because she was, you know, an addict. Um, but you know, those are the kind of things that I do. Um, and really trying to, you know, change people's lives, you know, and, and help these families and help these people. So that's where the money goes when someone buys apparel. Um, the next chapter of what I'm doing, I'm really excited about it. I'm about 90% done. Um, by the time this podcast comes out on, on your main site, I'll have everything up, but I started a nonprofit arm of war party movement called war party ranch. And the short story of that is this is for lack of better terms, a cowgirl course for female survivors of abuse. Mm -hmm. So what we'll be doing is we'll be bringing women out to the ranch for a six week course. And then when they graduate, we'll be getting them jobs uh, on ranches or with outfitters. Um, around the country. So, so That's the dream awesome. there is to, uh, let's say a woman in Arizona, regardless of race, you know, um, but a woman in Arizona, um, she's in an abusive relationship or needs to get out of what the situation she's in. We can bring her up to Colorado to the ranch for six weeks, teach her a skill set, and then get her a job with like a ranch in Nevada or an outfitter in Wyoming. Yeah. Um, and really just remove her from that situation. So that's the next chapter of, of where we're going with, with all of this. That's, that's pretty incredible, man. That's, that's awesome. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I know, I know like you, we've talked several times about how, uh, like, like how, how big of an issue is that that is on, on the reservations in particular and, uh, and just how little attention is paid to it. Um, 
you know, when we're we're too busy worried about uh, who Will Smith is going to slap next. Uh, to oh worry man, about. I know, right? Um, and you know, we we all get caught up in it, but uh, it's uh, I I I thought that was a it's a very worthwhile cause, and and you know, not having a huge audience, just being able to to get it out to as many people as I can, and you know, there's yeah, absolutely. As, well, I look uh, at your audience too, as as um people who can really help and be influential in that because a lot of your audience lives in rural areas. They live in places that they do have, you know, members of the native community live with them or they're close to Indian reservations. Um, and here's one thing a lot of people don't know um, because of the sovereignty of, of Indian reservations, the, the state of Wyoming, the governor of Wyoming did a really good job of putting together a plan to bring in the, the, the tribal police with the local sheriff's department and, and be able to share a lot of things. A lot of other states have not done that, which makes things difficult. But here's one thing. Um, Amber Alert or Sober Alert, for instance. Um, most people, if you're traveling, if you're traveling through Arizona and a little kid goes missing in, in uh, Tucson, you're going to get an alert for little Bobby who's missing and the car, but you get all that straight to your cell phone regardless of your network. Now, if that happens on the Navajo Reservation, you won't get an alert because their Amber Alert system is completely separate from a national Amber Alert system. They actually just incorporated an Amber Alert system on the Navajo reservation. However, if you are not part of the reservation, physically living on the Indian reservation, you cannot be a part of this um, alert system. So meaning mm-hmm. if you're not, if you don't live on the Navajo res and you are not a resident there, your phone will not be pinged when Melissa Thunderbird goes missing on the Navajo reservation. So you could be driving through Arizona by Flagstaff and you will never know that the car that just passed you was a car that was on an Amber alert on the Navajo reservation, the way you would, if it was little Bobby Johnson missing Mm -hmm. from Flagstaff. Um, So there's a lot of problems that happen in there. A lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, um, all these government organizations. And, and for me, it's just another story to tell people that like the government does not have your best interest at play. Um, no. You know, and, and all these, you know, working with the BIA and the FBI and all these different organizations I work with all the time, it is beyond frustrating. Um, and this is why a lot of, you know, there's a lot of grassroots efforts, a lot of just you know, search and rescue volunteers, you know, uh, close to Indian reservations who will just put a call out and say, Hey, there's a missing person. Will you guys help me? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it's just volunteer work versus, you know, an actual structured organization from the BIA or something, somebody getting involved. Um, and this is why I am doing this transition. It's part of the reasons why I'm doing this transition with the nonprofit the other reason why was um, I'm tied to a lot of really awesome veteran organizations that do great work. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm knocking them in any way. Um, but a lot of them don't take women. And it was kind of frustrating to me, you know, and you work on ranches, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. the handiest person out there is the, the 18 year old girl. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's been doing it since she was three. And it's like, I, even in special operations, you know, we have female operators um, and that work in a completely different capacity than a lot of people would even understand. Um, but I look at it, it's like, you know, these female veterans, these, these people are hurting as well. So yeah, I wanted to start something that was 
that would assist that community and, 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 uh, teach them a really cool skill set and not always be this, you know, uh, you know, like a boys club, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, I got my little boy knocking on the door, so I, I better, I better oh, no worries yet, but, uh, man, I enjoyed the shit out of this and let's, uh, let's plan on yeah, doing another one here soon. We'll do, uh, do the multi-parter cause I, I, I think yeah, we, good, brother. I think we can, uh, yeah, we got a lot to talk about, I think. Yeah, heck yeah. Well, take care, brother. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, for sure. Where where can they find all your stuff on social media? Um, so warpartymovement.com and um, on Instagram, just warpartymovement. And then my personal Instagram is Jeremiah Blackbeard. All right, cool. Well, thanks again, man. I appreciate the hell out of you. And uh, everybody else, move your ass. Burning daylight. <laughs> take, uh, you, take care. I'm a hussar, I'm a hun, I'm a wretched Englishman Routing upon a part at Waterloo I'm a dragoon on a dun, I'm a Cossack on the run I'm a horse soldier, timeless through and through Well, I was with Custer and the 7th, 76 or 77 Scalped that little big horn by the suit and the tears and devastation of a once proud warrior nation This I know cause I was riding with them too And I drank mare's blood on the run When I rode with the great cunt On the frozen Mongol steppe while at his height And as a white guard, as a red guard As the czar's own palace horse guard When Romanov was murdered in the night and I knew Saladin and rode his swift Arabians Harassing doomed crusaders on their heavy drafts And yet I rode the Percheron against the circling Sarason And once again against myself was cast Well I'm a hussar, I'm a hun, I'm a wretched Englishman Routing Bonaparte at Waterloo I'm a dragoon on a dun, I'm a Cossack on the run well, I've worn the Maddie's crimson. If you're silent and you'll listen, you'll know that it was with them that I stood. When Mayor Thorpe she cried as her four horsemen died, gunned down in scarlet, coldest blood. Well, I was the firstest with the mostest when I fought for Bedford Forest. Suffered General Wilson's Union raid. And mine was not the reason why, mine was but to do or die at Crimea with the charging light brigade. On high from Swiss to Sweden, be me Christian, be me heathen. The devil to the saber I shall put. With a crack flanking maneuver, I'm a new land a la super striking terror into regiment of foot. Well, I'm a hussar, I'm a hun, I'm a wretched Englishman, routing Bonaparte at Waterloo. I'm a dragoon on a dun, I'm a Cossack on the run, I'm a horse soldier, timeless through and through.
Well, I knew my days were numbered when all the trenches lumbered. More modern machinations still I get. No match for rapid fire or the steel birds of the sky. With the final rear guard action, I retreat. No match for barbed wire or the armored engine's whine. Reluctant, I retire and take my leave. Today I ride with special forces on those wily Afghan horses. The storms know that alliance give their thanks. And no matter defeat or victory in battle, it occurs to me that we may see a swelling in our ranks. Well, I'm a hussar, I'm a hunter, I'm a wretched English. 